0: Open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 2 through 12. Our focus will be on verses 4 through 10. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that Yahweh is good, the Lord is good. As you come to Him. A living stone rejected by men. But in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray your mercy and grace on us for all the times that we try to we try to be something we're not according to the world's standards and expectations. For all the time we we try to To live up to what is an ideal identity in the mind of this culture. Be it a quest for fame or affluence or power, prestige, a kind of being honored and recognized among men. So convict us, your children, of this sin in light of the honor and dignity that's ours in Jesus. May it be a glad and welcomed rebuke. And also forgive us of all the times we try to, to live in some kind of weak identity, be it that of a victim or or, or some some kind of view of ourself as, as being weak and, and, and that's truly who we are, we weak, but, but to, to realize who we are in Christ. Yes, there's sin here. But for those who think they are victims or, or that they are not loved or that they are hopeless, Father, for your children this morning may we, we understand we're in union with Christ and to, to determine our identity in such a way is actually akin to blasphemy and to think little of your Son. So just a deep and profound reflection on who Christ is that would extend to all of our living. May your Spirit come and bless that this morning, Father. So we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? How did you answer that question? Your name, your profession, your heritage, your ethnicity, your nationality, your alma mater. There are multiple ways that that question can be rightly answered. Who are you? And context is going to determine a large degree how you reply. If you're at a family reunion, it's unlikely that you'll lead with your job title. And if you're in a corporate setting, you're probably not going to tell them how you're related to Uncle Ralph. But in a vague context... Where your mind first goes could be telling. Who are you? Did you think it was your frame of reference individualistic or corporate, communal, group? Ours is an age that places great emphasis on the individual at the expense of any corporate or communal identity. And yet we wonder why we're so detached, lonely, isolated, well, Peter's aim in these verses is very clear. He wants us to know who we are. Being a Christian has implications for you individually, that's true. But you cannot think of yourself as a Christian isolated, individualistically, apart from any others. You have to think of yourself in reference to something much bigger and so it's clear that Peter wants us to know who we are, who the church is here. What's less clear is why Peter teases this out. We have some whys in this text, but why does Peter want us to know who? He doesn't spell this out, but I think we all realize rather quickly the importance of knowing who we are, of understanding our identity. Who speaks to why? Who speaks to why? Why? Who you are determines purpose. Understanding who you are is enlightening. It, it's, it opens your eyes. It helps you to understand why you are. And so whenever your identity is something like elect exiles, verse 1, chapter 1, whenever your identity is something like that, understanding that has radical implications for living your life, such that as Peter talks about li- later, Don't be surprised at these fiery trials. See, understanding something of who you are has widespread implications for understanding why you are. For example, how many of the church's problems stem from a failure to understand who she is? She's full of people acting like individuals. There's a consumeristic kind of mentality. You come to church as an individual seeking uh, uh, personal needs and and personal benefits, you see, and it it centers around you, and, and so you approach the church. And then how often does the church, catering to this, market herself to those perceptions? And with that, she becomes individualistic in a way. Each church. How often do you see, sense that, that each church is, is really trying to express her own unique individualism as something more special than the one across the street or next door? We're not that church. Our aim is simply to be the church. That's it. What's sad is how unique. An effort to not be unique is. We understand that the church, just as she is, by God's grace, is utterly unique. See, this is what it means to be saints. Called, called, called out, separate. Jesus has adorned the church. She doesn't need to doll herself all up. And any effort to do so, to to put on the makeup of this world, will not make her more attractive, but less so. My hope is that by the Word, the Spirit would speak to who we are in Christ so that we would have a kind of confidence in that. and We wouldn't have to put on these kind of airs and this kind of facade, not only individually, but corporately, understanding who we are together. And that this would determine our purposes, that that the deeper we would grasp this who, the wider the impact of why. The the more we know who we are, the wider the swath of why we are would be realized. The most important thing any of us can realize about our identity is, is how it's determined by our relationship to God. Our relationship to God is the most important thing about who we are. And outside of Christ, we are sinners. But here, Peter writes to the saints and he tells them that first your identity is who you are as a Christian, who you are as a saint is bound up in Christ, verse 4, as you come to Him. This is who you are as you come to Christ. This is, is this primarily how you think of who you are as, as who you are in Christ? Or is it what you do, your education, your job, your heritage, those things that you feel like you had a part in? Or is your first thought of who you are by pure grace in Christ? In a world where people are going crazy trying to self-define and have some kind of unique identity, rest in this, saints. Who you are is not determined by what You do, but by what Christ has done. Brad House writes, My identity is not what I do. I do out of my identity. You see, in Adam, this is who you are, sinner. And all your actions flowed forth out of who you were, a sinner. But now in Christ you are a new creation. Oh, what you do is important. But what you do doesn't determine who you are. Who you are determines what you do. Peter says, this is who we are, and it's who we are as we come to Christ. Verse 4, coming is believing. Coming to the living stone is what is spoken of in verse 6 as believing in Him. Believing in the cornerstone, the opposite of what is spoken of in verse 7, rejecting the cornerstone. Coming is the opposite of rejecting. it is believing. And Peter has told us that you believe 121 through Jesus. You believe in Jesus through Jesus. Don't think that you determined who you are because you came. You came because of Jesus. You came because 118, He ransomed you. You came because 11, the Father elected you. You came because 13, by the Spirit, He caused you to be born again. Who is this Christ then that we come to you see, if our identity is in Christ, who he is determines who we are. It's as we come to him that we begin to realize something who we are, and that's true because coming, believing in Christ, puts us into living union with Christ such that who he is determines who we are. And now do you see, now I hope you see a bigger picture here. The problem with the contemporary church so often is not simply that she doesn't know who she is, but that that's symptomatic of a much bigger problem, she doesn't know who Christ is. The first thing you see is that He is Lord. The antecedent for Him, as you come to Him, go back to verse 3, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord, the Lord is good, as you come to Him, the Lord so the Christ you come to is Lord. And this further reinforces, I just want to reinforce this, that coming is believing. Tasting that the Lord is good is believing. And I think that Peter's building on that. You taste that He's good, you come to Him. Those are the same thing. You remember in John 6.35 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes To me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So in John 6, coming, eating, drinking, believing are all synonymous. And that's what Peter's building on here. The one that we come to is the sovereign through whom and for whom all things were made. And one way, don't want to tease this out fully yet, but one way this speaks to who you are, is you are a royal priesthood. You come to Christ who is the King, the Sovereign, and as you're in unity with Him, the risen Christ, the God-man, under whose feet are all things, you are a royal priesthood. Second, He is a living stone. So Peter has spoken of our living hope to which we were born again through the living word. And now he speaks of this living stone, this living stone that was rejected by men, but is chosen and precious in the sight of God. How does this speak to who you are? I think this is part of why Peter is developing this. We already saw that Peter speaks of how Christ suffered and then his subsequent glories, One eleven. And that that's the pattern he's laying out in this book for us as believers. We have this hope and we suffer in the here and now. This is the pattern for the Christian life. Sufferings and then subsequent glories. And so here Christ is rejected. But chosen and precious in the sight of God. As we come to Christ the living stone. We are like living Stones. Who he is determines who we are. Our identity is found in him. In the living stone, we are like living stones that are being built into a spiritual house, a temple. So in him, you're a stone being built into a temple for the purpose of being a priesthood, for the purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is the stone, He is the temple, He is the priest, He is the sacrifice. And all of those things in a way that we can never be and should never try to be. You cannot be the cornerstone. You can't bear that weight load. You cannot be the foundation for a new cosmos, a new creation. You don't have to be. You cannot be the temple, the meeting place of God and man, reconciling God and man, bringing them together. You cannot be God and man You cannot reconcile God and man. You cannot be the temple. You don't have to be. You cannot be the priest or the sacrifice making propitiation for sins. And praise God, you don't have to be. And yet astounding You're in union with the Christ who is all of those things. And then in a lesser way, you yourself become a temple. We become a temple. A priesthood. You don't have to be Jesus. He fulfills all the scriptures. He fulfills all the Old Testament. All the shadows, all the the images that Peter's bringing forth here but then He puts you into union with Him such that He's fulfilling all these things in us. He's put us into union with Him such that He isn't who He is anymore outside of us. He's the Christ, that's who He is. But that means He's God's prophet, priest, and king for His people. He's the bridegroom. You see, He isn't who He is without us. He did this freely. He entered into this. It's it's not as if we complete God. It's not as as if we're fulfilling some lack in us, but that He's determined to be all that He is in union with us. Who He is determines who we are. Now, the metaphors you see are mixed here. You're a temple to be a priesthood. They're mixed, but they're all related. And do you see how you're not just told who, but why in this? You are a temple to be a priesthood. That's part of the why. And you're this priesthood to be, to offer, excuse me, spiritual sacrifices. You're not just told who, but you're told why. And, and part of the answer to why is a Who? Why are you a temple? To be a priesthood. And what does all that mean, though? You can all think of it in a very spiritual, cloudy, ethereal sense. What does it mean to be a temple, to be a priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices? I think this is a comprehensive metaphor for looking at all of life. This isn't something that you just do when you come to church. You're not just offering up a spiritual sacrifice whenever you sing a hymn or you partake of communion. It's not just something that you do in this kind of spiritual sense. It happens whenever you serve your neighbor and whenever you make a widget at the factory that all of your living is to be looked at in this sense that you do so. You're the church gathered, but you're also the church scattered. This is who you are as you leave. In the 51st Psalm, David says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That's a spiritual sacrifice that, that shouldn't just flavor our living whenever we come together, but there should be this brokenness and contrition and humility for our sin throughout all of our life, and that will radically impact the way you are a neighbor or an employee or an employer. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship by bodies I think Paul there intends the whole of us offer up the whole of yourself as the sacrifice to be consumed unto God Hebrews 13:5 commands us through Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name as a temple and dwelt by the spirit of God corporately and individually dwelt by, dwelt in by him to be a temple in all of our living, which I think is simply this, how do you offer up these spiritual sacrifices? You obey Him. It's obedience to Him. You obey Him. And it's this offering that's brought up before the Lord. It's this kind of sacrifice, not that merits anything, but that in the Christ who has merited all is acceptable to Him. You see, these spiritual sacrifices are acceptable through Jesus Christ. You're not earning anything. The only reason why that gift that offering, that sacrifice, comes up before God as acceptable is because it's offered up through Jesus. You're in union with Jesus. You're in Him as a living stone. And it's in Him that you're offering these things up and they're accepted through Him. All the glory for all of your doing is rooted in your being, which you have in Christ. So all of your doing is to the glory of Christ. But how stunning that our tainted, our stumbling, our faltering, our weak and pathetic obedience is acceptable to God. The holy God of heaven looks at your works, saint, in Christ and through Christ and he accepts them. He looks upon them with pleasure and delight as a father. You see, it's in Christ and through Christ that we recognize who and why we are. Now, upon what grounds does Peter assert this is true? Scripture, of course. He's drawing these images from the Old Testament, and so he gives these quotations from the Old Testament here. Do you remember in... In 1, 10 through 12, Peter says that the prophets of the Old Testament served us and that they served us through the apostolic preaching of Christ. Do you see Peter doing that here? He's bringing forth Christ from the treasury of the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament three times, all references referring to Christ as a stone, the stone. And he presents this contrast in these quotations between believers and unbelievers, between those who come to the stone and those who reject the stone. The three texts are Isaiah 28, 16, in verse 6, Psalm 118, 22, in verse 7, and Isaiah 8, 14, in verse 8. And he begins with telling us, before we get to man's response to the stone, with God's action regarding the stone. Behold, I, Yahweh, God, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. God lays this cornerstone that's chosen and precious. This is God's act. He lays this foundational stone. Now, the foundational stones would have been massive. Look up the foundation stones that you see in the temple as it stands today. And particularly a stone known as the Western Stone that you'll see in the Western Wall, weighing something of of over 50 tons. These would have been massive stones for the foundation. And the cornerstone would have been the most important stones, determining the soundness of the building in all angles. A good foundation stone would ensure that the structure was plumb, level, and square. And so you can see why these, these cornerstones were spoken of as precious. This is a term that would be used for gemstones. A highly valuable stone. This, these, these cornerstones were regarded as something of like diamonds, you see. How important they were. A good cornerstone would be. In laying this cornerstone, God is doing nothing less than laying the foundational stone for the new cosmos to be built upon. What He's doing in Christ in setting the stone is setting the stone upon which all of new creation will be set perfect because of His perfection. Perfection. This is the foundation stone for a cosmic temple, a new temple. Colossians one 18 through 18-20 tells us, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is new creation language. That in everything, He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So the new creation is built on the resurrected Christ who himself is the first fruits of the new creation. The cornerstone of the new cosmos. This new creation what's coming into being even here and now in this world that is fading and it's coming into being in living stones that are being built up as a temple. Believers see that it's those Who come to Christ now. This is is how you respond. If you come to Christ, it's those who come to Christ who are honored, not shamed. Whoever believes in Him, comes to Him, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Part of the living hope that we were born again to is an imperishable inheritance, verse 4, which is the new creation. It's yours in Christ. And also part of the living hope that's tied in with this are the praise and glory and honor that you'll receive at the revelation of Christ in verse 7. And no doubt part of that glory and honor and praise that you receive at the revelation of Christ are spelled out for you in what it means to be a holy priesthood. A temple At the revelation of Jesus Christ, Christ will be vindicated. And His vindication is the vindication of all His people that He is in union with. The honor that will be heaped on Christ will overflow and spill on to His bride. Any honor that the bride receives will speak to not the honor that she has in and of herself, but the honor of her bridegroom. Saints, what this means for you... Is so profound in this regard. May sin shame you and nothing else. How often do we bear shame for totally inadequate uh, and sinful reasons? Because of not meeting some expectation of the world or, or not, not having some kind of prestige or some kind of position in this world. No, sin should genuinely shame you. And then you realize this, that Christ is born away. My sin, thanks be to him. Oh, may it bring me in contrition and humility to the throne of God. But there may I rejoice in Christ my Lord and Savior. But may it be sin that shames us and nothing else. Not the accusations, not the malignment, not the ridicule of this world. Now the next two quotations deal with those who reject the stone, verses 7 and 8. The shame that is theirs. The rejected stone is the cornerstone. Whenever unbelievers reject Christ, they reject the future. They reject the new creation. They reject and forfeit all blessedness for all eternity. By rejecting the cornerstone, they anchor themselves to this world that is, we read, defiled. It has to be in contrast to this inheritance that we have. It's the the opposite of that. It's it's defiled. It's perishing. It's fading. The first passage that you have, Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, was used by Jesus in His parable of the wicked tenants. Remember that the Master does everything to protect the vineyard from outside threat. And then he entrusts it to tenants. And whenever the time comes for him to enjoy the fruits of it, he sends servants to bring those fruits. Seeing them, the tenants beat one, kill another, and stone another. He sends more servants, and they do the same. So he sends his son. And they think, let's kill him and we'll have his inheritance. We can have all these things outside of Christ. Rejecting the cornerstone. And in so doing, as the builders take this stone and they say, nah, They've rejected the very stone upon which God is going to build the new cosmos. And they walk away from their building project to stumble over this stone and break upon it. Jesus asked them, what do you think the master of the house will do when he comes to these servants? And and they condemned themselves, replying, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their The kingdom is forfeit, and it will be given to a people, the church, bearing the fruits thereof. Offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through our mediator Christ. Now the implications of what it means to reject the cornerstone are made vividly clear with the next quotation, verse 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he teases this out. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The builders cast aside the stone God has set and they stumble over it. The most frightening thing is this implication that Peter draws from this. That whenever God set him as the cornerstone for the new cosmos, God also intended and set him as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That it works the same way on both sides. That as God intended Christ to be the cornerstone for his people, he intended him to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for those who were not his people. And so they disobey the word as they were destined to to do. This is the doctrine of reprobation. Now, the doctrine of election is distasteful enough to modern ears. It is distasteful even to those who profess to love Jesus. It's distasteful, and how many of you can amen this? It's distasteful even to many of us at times we've experienced this. It's distasteful even to us who do genuinely love Jesus. But if the doctrine of election can be distasteful, the doctrine of reprobation is repulsive and disgusting to fallen man sinful man but it's not something you can run away from in the second letter letter excuse me in the second letter peter will say that the lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment second 2 peter 2:9 2, if that's not clear enough he goes on in verse 12 to say for them the utter gloom of darkness has been reserved excuse me that's verse 17 In verse 12 he says that they were born to be caught and destroyed Paul puts the verse from Isaiah 8.14 and Psalm one twenty two together in Romans 9, and, excuse me, the two quotations from Isaiah 8.14 and 28.16. He puts them together near the end of Romans 9, and he writes, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, what brought Paul to quote, put those two verses together in Romans 9. It's the same thing Peter's doing here. This is what Paul has just said in Romans 9. So then, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even to us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You see, behind Christ, as both the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, is the sovereign Lord. Both election and reprobation assume a fallen humanity. But do note this about the sovereign work of God in this that it stands behind them in an in, in a, in a asymmetrical way. It stands behind them differently. They assume this fallen humanity. And God chooses to have mercy on some, and He chooses not to have mercy on others. And what you need to realize about this is, you cannot, what's the natural human response? That's not fair. Fair means we all go to hell. Fair means justice. There is no injustice in this. There is this fallen humanity out of which God chooses some and He chooses not to choose others. You can't deny that implication. And whenever He does so, there's an act of mercy and there's an act of justice. But nowhere in the equation is there any injustice. And that's the... That's the exact accusation. You can't interpret Romans 9 any other way. If you read Romans 9 and there's not some kind of impulse in you that says that's not fair, you're not reading Romans 9 at all. Because that's what he's dealing with there. And where he goes to is this cover your mouth. He's God. This is a sobering doctrine. a doctrine that will put to the test just how thoroughly you want to confess Jesus is Lord God is sovereign not only that it's a test for really recognizing who you are you are one who God would have been just to leave to yourself and to your sins And the only reason you are different is His mercy and His grace, which you have absolutely no claim to. And that's what Peter begins. He returns to who we are in verses 9 through 10. And as he does, he magnifies and heightens the contrast, not between just who we are and who they are, who've rejected the stone. They stumble, but you He's not only heightening the contrast between who we are and who they are, but between who we are and who we were. He called us out of darkness into light. Once we were not a people, now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. And Peter again lays the Old Testament on thick, you see. He he liberally gents the church in these terms associated with Israel. You are a chosen race. This is, the, this, is, this is going back directly to they stumble over the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. It also takes you back to verse 1, being an elect exile. The reason why you are chosen is because you're in union with the Son who is the chosen cornerstone. His identity determines ours. Jesus told his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Deuteronomy 7, Moses explains to Israel, Why did God choose you? He says, Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Shorthand so far of this. Why did God set His love on you and choose you? It was not because of you. What's the answer? But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to to your fathers. Remember that covenant had absolutely nothing to do with Abraham. As if Abraham evoked it or merited it. It was one that God chose to enter into. And now he's saying, Why did God choose you, Israel? Why did he set his love upon you? He set his love upon you, and here was the answer. Did you catch it? He set his love upon you because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. The answer is not to be found in you. Where's the answer? In God's free and sovereign will. And He chose you because He's keeping covenant. A covenant which He just entered into freely, not bound by any any means. The answer for election and the love of God is completely found in God. We are a royal priesthood. In Exodus 15, 5-6, God tells Israel... Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a king of a priest and a holy nation. You remember in the garden, Adam received dominion. Here's the sovereign Lord who says, you have dominion. And can you see how how Adam, in acting as a king, was also acting as a priest? Because his rule was to be the presence of God on this earth. And so, too, in Christ, we begin to recognize what humanity was meant to be. This, this prophet, priest, and kingly aspect to our identity recovered in Christ, a royal priesthood. Put here to magnify, reflect our Lord. We are a holy nation. Holy means set apart. We're this people that are set apart by the Father. Where We read that we were elect by the Father to be sanctified by the Spirit, verse two. We are a people for his own possession. Often in the Old Testament, you've heard some instances already. Israel is referred to as God's you have to get there's a there's a there's a modifier here that's understood. It's so often used in this language, to be his treasured possession. That's the idea of being his possession. It's his treasured possession. You're something you're something that that the Father, this goes back to our, our spiritual sacrifices being acceptable to Him, you're, you're something that the Father doesn't just tolerate in Jesus. He treasures His people in Christ. He purchased us to Himself by the blood of His Son. This doesn't speak to what we were worth. And yet, it does speak to how the Father treasures and values and esteems us. You're his treasured possession. Now, why? Again, you see how who leads to why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the equivalent of spiritual sacrifices. It's again, I don't think speaking of not just singing hymns of praise and using your mouth to share the gospel, which are absolutely essential. You're not sharing the gospel unless you're talking. You can't live out the gospel and someone see that and then trust Jesus. But yet this does refer to all of your living being this kind of declaration of how glorious your God is. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is his sovereign effectual call. That call in Romans 8 where you learn that all that were predestined are called and all who are called are justified. It's that call that creates light where there is only darkness. And so 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us, God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How is it that you ever came to know Him so that you could come to Him? It's that God said, let there be light. The light that you're called into is His light. There is no other. You're called into His light. That's why you can proclaim His excellencies, because you've been called into His light, into His glory and excellencies. And underneath the praise of God's every excellency is the praise of His grace. We will praise not just His grace, His mercy, His love, His compassion, His faithfulness, His goodness. We will praise His omnipotence, His omniscience, His sovereignty. His omnipresence, His immutability, His eternality. Not only that, we will praise His righteousness, His holiness, even His wrath. And the reason we can do that is because all that God is, He is for us in Christ. All that He is. And so underneath your praise of His every attribute is the praise of His grace. Whenever you rejoice in the Holy God, the only reason that, you're, that God's holiness is a delight to you is because it comes on the foundation of this cornerstone, Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us that in love, God predestined us For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see the same principle there? You're a chosen people. To offer up spiritual sacrifices Speaking of the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. And all of this in Christ and through Christ. Left to ourselves, what would we be? We would have rejected this stone. We would not be a people. We would not have mercy. This language of once not being a people, once not having mercy, draws from Hosea chapter 1. Where, speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, we're told this. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And and Yahweh said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And Yahweh said to him, "Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by Yahweh their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war, Or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And Yahweh said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So the northern kingdom has rejected God, and God says to her, Not my people, no mercy. But Judah sinned as well. And yet for her, he promises mercy. And what you have in here is the exact opposite of what happened in Hosea. Here you have a people who are not God's people. A people who have no claim to God. And God pronounces over them, Mercy, my people. Why does Peter tell us who? First, because who lies behind why. My greatest hope in this sermon is that you would realize deep down in your soul who you are. And reflect and meditate upon this because so often you don't need another command. If you've been discipled for any extent of time, most often, yes, there's times whenever you need wisdom and guidance and making a, a kind of nuanced choice. That happens all the time. But most of the time, for the really big things that count in life, you know what God commands. It's quite clear. And so, quite often, you don't need just this really kind of practical, pragmatic thing so that you go out and now you know what to do. What you need is to recognize who you are. The biggest steps in Christian growth, I believe, come from this. Not hearing another command, but recognizing more and more who you are. And really, you begin to grow in your knowledge of that as you recognize who Christ is. Second, Peter no doubt tells us who we are as a comfort for us as elect exiles. You will be rejected, ridiculed, persecuted, hated. So was our Lord. And yet it was by those very actions of men that God established him as the cornerstone. And likewise, whenever you share in Christ's sufferings, know you will share in His glories. And it will be those very sufferings out of which those glories will emerge. Do not hang your head. Honor is for you. Shame is for those who reject the cornerstone. But third, Peter does tell us why, so that will impact how we live. You do need to tease out that, reflect on who you are, and as you do, it's going to impact how you live, And, and Peter begins to do that beloved i urge you verse 11 as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh recognizing who you are impacts why the deeper our understanding of who the wider the swath of intentional god glorifying why will be let's pray father thank you for christ Oh, thank you that who we are is tied to Him by grace. May we just reflect, be in awe. May it just be a joy to reflect on these things. And then the joy of the Lord being our strength, that that flowing into our living, not in, in any kind of way of drudgery, but as this delight of our new identity in Christ. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.